Well, good morning. It is great to be here. Well, I'd love for you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk. And uh, that's right, Habakkuk. And um, it might be that part of your Bible that's a little bit dusty and the pages are kind of stuck together a little bit. But uh, I hope that uh, Mr. Habakkuk will become a friend uh, after our, our time today. Habakkuk. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like God isn't making sense? What's he doing in the world? Why does he allow so much suffering, so much injustice, so much corruption? Do you ever feel like this? When will God just say, stop, enough? And why doesn't he stop it? If he's good, if he hates evil, why does he allow so much evil to exist? This last year, have you prayed something like this? Lord, how long is this going to go on? How long until life gets back to normal? How long until you act to fix the corruptions of society? How long until you heal the the contentions in our country? How long will lawlessness reign? Well, look with me at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Listen to this. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, and yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. Does that sound familiar? That was written over 2,600 years ago, and it's as relevant today as it was back then, isn't it? I was sitting, actually, I was studying. I like to sometimes go to the restaurant and take my Bible and my notes, just do some studying outside of the office. I was sitting in a a Texas barbecue place in our community, and I was sitting there, and uh, the lady behind the desk said, uh, oh, are are you studying today? And I said, well, actually, I am. I had my books and stuff. She said, well, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading Habakkuk. She looked at me like, what's that? And I, and I looked at her and I said, in all truthfulness, I said, it's the most helpful book I've found to help me make sense of what happened last year. And then she looked at me kind of weird like, what's wrong with you, man? <laughs> see, sub, see, Habakkuk lived at a time in his country, the nation of Israel was divided. And, and you'll remember this from your biblical history. There, there was a time, uh, the nation of Israel, God called his nation to be a light to the nations for his law and for his truth and, and, and to be that witness in the world. And, and yet we know that the Israelites, generation after generation, turned away from God. They turned away from Yahweh to worship uh, other gods and, and, and serve other deities uh, and, and that got to the place where even uh, in, in that great monarch with, with uh, uh, kings like David and, and Saul, that uh, the country eventually became divided after that to where literally there was a civil war resulting in a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And uh, maybe you're about that time in your Bible reading plan when you're reading through First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and you're like, what is this all about? You know, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad, right? Are you there? And it's, it's a horrible time in history. And yet Habakkuk lived during a time of one of the good kings, a, a king named Josiah. You remember he was about eight years old when he came to power. Now, I have an 11-year-old at home. I looked at him, what do you think about that? You know, becoming king at eight years old. He's like, man, that'd be really cool, dad. Um, so you eight-year-olds out there, get to know Mr. Josiah, okay? So, so Josiah was, was one of the good kings. In fact, during his ministry, you'll remember uh, that they were doing some renovations on the temple, 
and, and uh, they're doing that, and they discovered a book, and they brought it to the king, and it was a book of the law, uh, perhaps the book of Deuteronomy, or maybe it was the whole Torah, the, the whole five books uh, of, of Moses. And they brought it to the king, and he read it, and he wept, and he tore his robes because he realized, we're doing all this wrong. We're into idolatry. We've forgotten the law of God. We're, we've turned away from our God. And so he, he called for this massive repentance and revival, and it was an incredible, incredible point in Israel's history. And then Josiah died, and a new king came to power and took it right back to the idolatry and in the injustice of the previous kings. And that's, that's where Mr. Habakkuk is as we, as we come to his book today. Once again, the nation is back in sin and in idolatry and in injustice. And God is again threatening his disciplinary action if the nation doesn't repent. So think about the context. Major political change. Political leadership is ungodly and corrupt. People are living in sin. Injustice reigns. Wickedness abounds. People are turning away from God for help. And they're desperate. In the midst of that, Habakkuk cries out and says, Lord, why aren't you helping us? How long will you tolerate this? He pleads with God to intervene. Why don't you stop the madness? Why do you allow such violence and lawlessness? Lord, it doesn't make sense. And maybe you feel, felt like that a little bit like I have recently. So let me ask you a question. What do you do when God doesn't make sense? What do you do when you can't put it together? What do you do when he seems indifferent and he doesn't answer your prayers? Or, or maybe it seems even that he, he doesn't care. Well, I would suggest to you that the book of Habakkuk exists in part to answer that question. What do we do when God doesn't make sense? So in our short time today, uh, I'd like you to see with me in the text five responses when God doesn't make sense. Five, five responses when we feel like it isn't making sense to us and we don't know what God is doing. And again, um, I've only got one Sunday with you, so you'll have to be content with the jet tour of Habakkuk today. Certainly this is worthy of a slower and more in-depth study, but hopefully I can at least give you the big picture to provoke uh, further study. Now, real quick, as we, as we jump into Habakkuk, Habakkuk is different from most of the prophetic books in that what it's doing is it's recording a conversation between God and Habakkuk. And uh, so what we're going to do this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do some righteous eavesdropping. And we're going to listen in on this conversation between God and Habakkuk. And I think along the way, we're going to learn how to respond when God doesn't make sense. Okay. Uh, in the first chapter, Habakkuk's going to talk, then God's going to answer, and then Habakkuk's going to respond. Okay. That's kind of confusing because we don't see uh, those changes of person talking there. Chapter two is all God talking, and then chapter three, Habakkuk finally responds, okay, and that, that'll help you sort of navigate through it. So let's look at the first response. When God doesn't make sense, what's the first thing we're supposed to do? Okay, number one, we want to turn to God with our hard questions. Number one is turn to God with your hard questions. Now, now this is sort of in the white spaces of the chapter, meaning it, it's not explicit. God doesn't tell him to do this, but Habakkuk models for us this principle, and I think this is a good principle to model. Uh, look back at the text. And as we come to Habakkuk, we've, we've walked in on an intense emotional conversation. Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists. Contention arises. And therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, and therefore justice comes out perverted. He says, what's going on, Lord? I don't get it. Injustice reigns, lawlessness reigns, I'm praying, and nothing's happening. So let me tell you what God's going to do. God's going to say this, Habakkuk, I can tell you what I'm doing, but you won't believe it. He says to him, um, you think it's bad now? Look at God's response in verse 5. Look among the nations and observe. Be astonished. Wonder 
God says, because I am doing something in your days and you would not believe it if you were told. What are you going to do, God? Look what he says. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And we say, what? God is going to raise up a pagan nation to come in and destroy the nation of Israel and and destroy the people of God and the temple and the wall and carry a bunch of them back to Babylon? That's your plan, God? And it's interesting, as Habakkuk responds to this, he doesn't get it. What are you doing? It's like he asks God for an answer. He says, okay, you're not going to like it. But he tells him anyway. And then it's like, what? Why would you bring in a pagan nation to destroy the people of God? So Habakkuk responds. Look at verse 12. This is interesting. Habakkuk defends God. Now let me ask you a question. You ever felt, do you, have you felt the inclination to defend God? <laughs> right? What are you doing? Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? This is Habakkuk's response. God, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die, he says a bit naively. You, O Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. I get that. But your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? He says, I know you, God. You're holy. You love what is right. You hate what is wrong. How can you do this? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? He's saying, how is it that you're going to let the Babylonians win and the Israelites be defeated? That doesn't make sense to me. Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The the Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook and drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing hook? I don't get it, God. How can you do this? Here's Here's Habakkuk's dilemma, and I think this is something that we wrestle with as believers. What God is doing doesn't make sense in light of who we know him to be. You ever felt like that? Now, it's not explicit, but Habakkuk is modeling one of the most important things we need to do when God doesn't make sense, and that is we need to turn to God instead of away from him. Uh, Pastor Shane just read Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Those are lament psalms, and it's a great reminder. We see this in in the psalms. We see it in Job. We see it in the prophets that when things get hard and things get difficult and you don't know what's going on, turn to God. Don't turn away from him. Bring him your questions. Bring him your doubts. Uh, Pray about the things that are bothering you. You know, a thousand things go wrong when we turn away from God in our difficulty. And yet every good thing begins when we turn to God for help. And that's what we see here. It's what we see in the Psalms. It's what we see in the other prophets. So, so, so this is our first principle. When, when God doesn't make sense, we need to turn to God for help. Can I just ask you, where do you turn when things don't make sense to you? It's one of the challenges of this text. Where are we turning? Who are we turning to? Okay, so, so that's where we're at. That's chapter one. Uh, Habakkuk cries out to God. God responds. Habakkuk goes, I don't get it. That's even worse than I thought. How can you do this? It doesn't make sense in light of who I know you to be. And so then Habakkuk positions himself. Chapter two, verse one, he says, I'm gonna stand my guard. I'm gonna station myself, right? He, he's getting ready. I'm ready for God's answer. Verse two, God answers. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fall. Though it tarries, wait for it. And it certainly will come. He says, get ready, Habakkuk. Here it comes. Get ready to write it down, okay? Here's my answer. Verse four. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? You know that verse. 
That's our second uh, uh, principle. When, when God doesn't make sense, what's the first thing we're going to do? We're going to turn to God, right? What's the second thing we're going to do? We're going to choose to live by faith in the Lord. Choose to live by faith in the Lord. That's verse four. The righteous will live by faith. You ready for this? When God doesn't make sense, believe the gospel. Trust what God is doing. Believe upon him. Habakkuk reminds us here, actually God is reminding us through Habakkuk, that there are only two ways to live. Look look back there. Behold, as for the proud one, that's a reference to Babylon, his soul is not right within him. See, there's only two ways to live. You, You can trust in yourself, you can try to make sense of it in your own thinking, in your own understanding, or what's the alternative? You trust by faith in the Lord. There, there, there's only two choices, right? You can trust yourself or you can trust the Lord. That sounds like Proverbs, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Those are the two choices. And the proud one, Babylon, proud, puffed up, arrogant, rejecting Yahweh. But remember, the Israelites at this time in history, they were being just as proud, just as arrogant. They were rejecting their God. They were trusting in themselves. They were going their own way. And God here calls them back. When things don't make sense, choose to trust in the Lord. Choose to live by faith. Now, your Bible may have a little bit different rendering there. The verse is actually better translated, the righteous will live by his faithfulness. And don't let that mess you up. Don't let that confuse you. All that's saying is a believer lives in right relationship to God, not by faith acted one time, but by ongoing, trusting faith in the Lord. It's it's an ongoing act, not a one-time event. And, um, and this, is, this is really significant because um, what he's saying is uh, we need to choose to trust in who God is when things don't make sense. Now, you know this, that this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament, isn't it? It's quoted in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It's quoted in Galatians 3, verse 11. The Apostle Paul in both of those books demonstrates that a relationship with God has always been by grace alone through faith alone, hasn't it? That's not a New Testament concept. Believers have always uh, come to God in relationship through faith alone. And, and we understand even Old Testament believers who, like Habakkuk, who were trusting in God, that that trust ultimately looked forward to the coming Messiah where the gospel would be presented in its fullness. But we've always related to God. Believers have always related to God by grace alone, through faith alone. What's interesting is, and you may not know this, the third reference where this is used in the New Testament is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. And in that verse, this, uh, this verse here, the righteous shall live by faith, is not quoted in regard to our conversion, our justification, our coming to Christ uh, in, in that initial uh, um, uh, reconciliation with God. It's used in Hebrews for sanctification, that the way as believers we continue to relate to God, the way we continue to grow in our faith and, and grow in godliness and in our character is through faith. Faith is not something that we exercise once for salvation and then we move on to other things. No, faith is always the basis of how we relate to God. And especially when things get difficult, especially when things get hard, we have to choose to believe the gospel. And maybe it is, uh, perhaps for some of you, that, that the reason life doesn't make sense and, and the reason you feel like you're spinning your wheels in despair and anxiety and frustration and, 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 and you don't understand is that you've never come to that place in your life where you've turned from your sin and your own understanding to choose to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. But that, that's where hope begins. That's where, that's where faith begins, is in trusting in God alone. And of course, we understand ultimately that is a trust in the person and work of Jesus alone. But the point is the same. When God doesn't make sense, we choose to believe the gospel. We, we trust in the Lord. You say, that sounds pretty basic. It is. This isn't rocket science. This is 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. When God doesn't make sense, believe the gospel. Trust him. When life seems out of control, when things seem desperate, where will you put your trust? I think that in all the challenges of life, God's really only asking us one question. I mean, you can just reduce God's exam for us has only one question on it in every circumstance, in every situation. Here it is. Will you trust me? Will you believe what I say? And that, that, is, that is the ultimate of what God is asking us, to trust him. Where are you putting your trust? Where will, put you, where will you put your trust in your next crisis, in your next difficulty? Some of you are in the middle of those things now. Can I just encourage you? Ask yourself the question, where am I putting my trust? What is God doing in the chaos? He's asking, will you trust me? Now look at the, look at the verses that follow in verse four. Uh, let me, let me kind of set this up real quick. Um, in verses 6 to 19, God is going to give a series of woes. And, and a woe is a specific pronouncement of judgment. And, and what God's going to do here in responding to Habakkuk is he's going to say, wait a minute. Yes, I'm using the Babylonians. I know you don't understand that. You need to trust me. But I want you to remember that Babylon, being a, a, a horrible, wicked nation, is going to see justice as well. I'm going to take care of them as well. And God's going to show him that here. Look, look at verses 6 and 8. Verses 6 to 8 demonstrate that Babylon was violent and they shed blood. They made themselves rich at the expense of others. And God says, but you know what? In the end, they'll be plundered. Judgment will come upon them. In verses 12 to 14, uh, he tells them that their cities are full of violence and bloodshed. Verses 15 to 17, violence and bloodshed is taking, they're taking advantage of their neighbor's And yet the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment that they're imposing upon their neighbors, taking their property, killing them off, that will come back to them in God's judgment. They will eventually be disgraced and devastated. So what God's doing here is he's assuring Habakkuk that justice will prevail. Evildoers will be punished. And we need to remember that. When we look out and when we see injustice, when we see lawlessness, when we see wickedness reigning, when good is called evil and evil is called good, we need to remember there is coming a day of judgment. God will right every wrong one day. And sometimes we get all anxious because we forget that when God doesn't make sense. But even beyond that, there's a greater purpose in terms of what God is working here. When God doesn't make sense, we need to remember a third response. A third response. Not not just that God is gonna bring judgment, we understand that, but here's the third response. That God's goal is to fill the earth with his glory. God's goal is to fill the earth with his glory. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. This is God speaking. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire? And nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, if you're like me, the first time I read that, I was like, what? What on earth does that mean? Okay, so let me, let me take a stab on what this means because it's a little bit confusing. Here's what I think God is saying. He's saying this, look, peoples rise up and peoples get destroyed, right? You know, the Assyrians rise up and then Babylon takes over. The, the, the Greeks come up and then Rome takes over, right? Throughout civilization, there are empires that rise and then those empires fall. And God is saying, look, I'm behind all of that, right? I am sovereign o- over all of that. Uh, and people, they toil for fire. They grow weary for nothing. Why? God is wanting that, us to see that nations come and nations go. But in the end, all of that amounts to futility. Where, where, where is the Babylonian Empire today? Where is it? It's gone. The superpower of Habakkuk's time is gone. And that's the point, right? Peoples rise up, 
People get destroyed, people take over, and that's just the way it goes. It's the cycle. And God is saying, remember, I'm behind all that. Don't get caught up in all that. What I want you to remember is, as peoples come and peoples go and you don't understand, I want you to remember this. My goal in all of that is to bring glory to myself. Don't forget God's plan is to fill the whole earth for his glory. That's what he says there. What he plan, he, God plans what he plans and allows what he allows because it furthers his agenda that this whole broken world would be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Now let me ask you a question. We know a few things that Mr. Habakkuk didn't know. Right? What happens in the Babylonian captivity? Who hears about Yahweh? That would be Mr. Nebuchadnezzar, right? And we've got that whole narrative in the book of Daniel to see God filling the whole earth with his glory to the Babylonian king, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. See, we know that. Habakkuk doesn't know that. And so the point is, when you don't understand what God is doing, when God doesn't make sense, remember, his goal is often not our goal, is it? His goal is to fill the whole earth with his glory. Now, you can sort of hear Mr. Habakkuk say this. Okay, um, I don't see how the Babylonian invasion is part of your good agenda. And you know what? God doesn't give him the answer to that. That's why trust in God comes first, that, right? That's why the righteous live by faith comes first. Because have you recognized this? God doesn't give us puzzle pieces, like complete puzzle pieces, right? He doesn't show us the whole picture often. He gives us some puzzle pieces and says, now trust me with what you know. That's what living by faith means. We trust God for who he is and what he tells us, but many times we don't see the whole picture of what he's doing. Well, let me ask you this. How might God be working his agenda today? How might all of this in our country and in our nation be a part of his good plan? Why would God allow our favorite political leaders to fail? Maybe because he doesn't want us to trust them ultimately, right? Why why would God work in such a way that you, you work your whole life for retirement and then The stock market crashes, the economy tanks, and you lose a boatload of that money. Maybe because God's glory is that you wouldn't trust in your riches, but in him, right? You see how this works? What is God doing? Maybe the reason God is allowing erosions of American freedoms right now that we hold dear is that he wants us to trust Jesus more than our freedoms. See, God's goal is often not our goal. His goal is to fill the whole earth with his glory. Uh, This year has been really difficult, hasn't it? Restrictions on our freedoms, restrictions on autonomy, uh, restrictions on all that. Why is God doing that? Well, maybe because he doesn't want us to believe the lie that we're really autonomous, that he alone runs the universe. And that will trust him. Only God is worthy of our trust. And so when God doesn't make sense, remember his goal is to fill the earth with his glory. And we need to trust him on that. I don't know if this is true or not, but I, but I picture that somewhere in heaven, there's like this master control room. And you think, you think the guys on the tech boards back there got a pretty sweet setup? I mean, it's the control room where God runs the whole universe, right? That, that's going to be impressive. And if we were to go into that room where God in his wonderful sovereignty and providence according to his goodness and holiness and wisdom is running and controlling every atom in creation so that it serves his glory. I think if we were to peek in there now, it would undo us. (laughs) I don't think we could handle that. Maybe someday in heaven we'll be able to see that. But we trust that what the text tells us is that God is accomplishing his glory and so we trust him even when he doesn't make sense. Well, there's one final woe here. Look at this in verse 18. When God doesn't make sense, 
This is our next response. When God doesn't make sense, be careful. Be careful. Have you noticed, I've noticed this about myself. When God doesn't make sense to me, when I don't understand what he's doing, I need to be very, very careful. Because when that's going on in my heart, I am prone to entertain things that I normally wouldn't entertain. I might be tempted to justify things that I normally wouldn't justify. We are very, very vulnerable when we're in a place where we don't feel like God makes sense, which is why we need this next point. Look at this, verse 18. Submit yourself to his supremacy. When God doesn't make sense, submit yourself to his supremacy. Look at verse 18 with me of chapter two. What profit is the idol when his maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork and when he fashions speechless idols. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake to a mute stone, Arise, and God says this, and that's your teacher? God's being, this is what we call divinely inspired sarcasm here, okay? If in case you're, you're not missing that, okay? God's saying, you're going to make your hope a block of wood? There's no breath inside at all, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. You know, when God doesn't make sense, we are often tempted to turn for other sources for help. Have you noticed that? When we turn to other sources for help and hope instead of God, the Bible calls that idolatry. And that was exactly where the nation of Judah was as as Habakkuk is is prophesying here. What's going on? Judah said, yeah, we we believe in the Lord. We, We believe in Yahweh, but maybe aligning ourselves with the Assyrians would be good insurance. Right? Maybe setting up some deities of the, the Asherah on the high places, some Egyptian gods, some Assyrian gods, just in case. Right? What, what can that hurt? And like so many Christians today, they said, oh yes, I love God, I trust in God, but I'm also going to lean on these other things in my life. And, and again, note, note, God is intending to be over the top here. He's intending to be sarcastic, saying, are you saying you're going to put your hope in a piece of wood because that's what you're doing. See, Judah made, made alliances with other countries. They worshiped other deities. They were fighting evil with evil was what they were doing. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know what? We're American Christians. We are so far past idolatry. I don't have a Buddha in my bathroom, Pastor Keith. I don't, I promise. But we Americans have more sophisticated idols, don't we? Do you know what your idols are? What are the things in your life that are competing with your allegiance and love for God? I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but you know, you know one of the biggest idols that I think American Christians are facing today? The idolatry of freedom. We love freedom. We're thankful for our freedom. We can trust our freedom too much, can't we? We can trust our freedom more than we trust God. And I know you do this. You say, I trust God, but when you have a problem, what do you do? Well, you Google it. That's what we all do, right? I trust Jesus, but I'm going to Google it too. You know, Alexa, solve the world's problems. I probably shouldn't say that in case some of you have your phones on. (laughs) But that's what we do, right? We're syncretists. We do the exact same thing as the nation of Judah. Yes, we believe in Yahweh, but we're going to divide that loyalty with other things. That's called idolatry. And what God is saying is, if you're drowning in a pool, do you want the lifeguard to jump in or are you going to throw him a two by four? And that's what we do when we turn to idols, when we turn to wood, whether they're physical idols or whether they're idols of our hearts. That, that, that's... That's what we do. You, you think the next election is going to solve every problem? You think the next le- legislation is going to solve? Only Jesus solves this. That's why we need a Savior. And we put our hope in Him, not in political solutions, not in lawless interventions. You say, Pastor, I'm not sure what my idols are. 
Here's, here's how you discover your idols. Follow your emotions. Your anger, your worry, your fear. If you trace those back far enough, you'll come to your idols. And God says, don't put your trust in them. And we are, we are so vulnerable. I think, I think that Christians are more prone than ever right now to return evil for evil instead of overcoming evil for good, not playing by the world's systems, but choosing by God's grace to trust him and overcome evil with good. And God says in the midst of these idols, these blocks of wood, he says, remember this, look at the end of the verse 20 there, but the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him, he alone is God, he alone is worthy of our worship. We need to turn away from idolatry, turn away from false deities to him. My historic spiritual hero is a man named John Newton. You, you know him as the, uh, the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. Listen, listen to Newton. There is only one political maxim which comforts me, and it is this. The Lord reigns. Oh, that we would believe that and trust that and act on that. So God finishes speaking. Okay, that's chapter two. God finishes speaking. We've seen several responses when God doesn't make sense. Submit to his supremacy. Don't trust in idols. Turn away. So God's done. What's Habakkuk gonna do now? How's he gonna respond? And th- this, is, this is the most amazing thing. You know, one of the joys of being an expositor is you just go to the next verse. That's what we do, right? And there's nothing novel. We just go to the verse and we explain it. We go to the next verse and we explain it. That's exposition. You never know. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get next. And you're not going to believe what Habakkuk does now. And this, this, is so, this was what changed my heart in this text. How's Habakkuk going to respond? You know what he does? He picks up his guitar and he writes a song and he sings. What is that all about? This is, this is really profound. You say, where do you get that? Where do you get Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the... Shaganoth, and, and maybe Darby can help us with the musical reference there. I don't know exactly. It's some sort of musical reference. But we know he writes a song, and we know he picks up a guitar. Why? Flip to the very end of the book. Look at chapter 3, very end of the book, verse 19. We get a musical reference for the choir director on my stringed instruments. That tells us that all of chapter 3 is a song that Habakkuk wrote and played on some sort of guitar thing. Now, uh, my oldest son is our musical expert in our family. He plays uh, electric guitar. And uh, so I asked him, my musical, you know, what is this reference here? And he assured me that the stringed instruments is a Gibson Les Paul electric guitar. But I, I don't know if that's true. But it was some sort of stringed instruments. But guys, this is so profound. You ready? When life doesn't make sense, when God doesn't make sense, when life is confusing, when we're hopeless, we sing our way to hope. That's what he's telling us to do. You sing your way to hope. You sing your way to righteous responses. That's our our, our fifth response here. Sing your way to righteous responses. You say, well, what do we sing about? When God doesn't make sense, I don't feel like singing. What do I do? Well, he's gonna give us, this is so good, and you need to go back and study this in more detail. But he gives us some ideas. When God doesn't make sense, how are we gonna get through it? Answer, we're going to sing our way to hope. We're going to sing our way to righteous responses. Let me give you some of the themes that we need to sing about. And this this is the content of his song. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath remember mercy. That's the first thing we want to sing about. We want to sing prayers for God's mercy. Sing prayers for God's mercy. As we experience God's judgment, as we experience affliction, as we experience difficulty in our nation, in our people, on our world, we need to pray that God would revive his work, that that in wrath he would once again show mercy. Do, Do you long for a revival in our country when men and women will turn from their wicked ways and their selfishness and their worldliness and idolatry and turn to King Jesus? Do you long for that? 
We need to pray for that. We need to sing about that. You, you remember uh, in, in the Great Awakening in America, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and that great revival. We need to pray for that. We need to sing about that. Lord, in the midst of the difficulty, remember mercy. Be merciful to us. Lord, would you be pleased to bring men and women to Christ? We pray for mercy. That's the first thing we sing about. We, we pray for God to revive his work, to make it known to pray for mercy in conversions and, and salvation in our, in our land and in our hearts. We, we pray for the revival of our churches. The, so many churches are just worldly and they're following false gospels. And Lord, revive the church. Show mercy on your church that we might be effective for your kingdom. So we sing prayers for mercy. Secondly, we sing rehearsals of God's character. This is the second thing we need to sing about. Sing rehearsals of God's character. Look at verses three to six with me. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And you say, Keith, I'm sorry, I failed biblical geography. What's that all about? Those were two locations from Israel's past where God showed great power to deliver his people. So, so by alluding to those two places, Habakkuk is provoking the people to remember times in their past where God acted, where God worked in, in great deliverance. Look back at the text there. He says, his splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hands and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Listen to this. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. Oh my goodness. When you're discouraged and hopeless and despairing, you need to remember the character of your God. That he is great in splendor and mighty in deeds and radiant in power and and sovereign. And he works in in everlasting ways. This is our God. Do you know why we do all the wrong things when God doesn't make sense? Do you know why we end up in hopelessness and despair? Because our God is too small in our minds, isn't he? We get all worked up over some little thing in the culture, some little political thing, and we forget the Lord made the heavens and he rules over all. You say, how are we going to remember that God is big and he's great and he's powerful? How are we going to do that? We're going to sing about that. We're going to sing songs about the greatness of God and the power of God and the mercy of God. And those, doesn't music do something that's just amazing? I can, I can read a systematic theology and that's, that's a worship my God is great and I'm learning about him or some title, but there's something that happens in the fact that God invented music for the people of God to sing his character and glorify him. Music does something in our souls that nothing else does, doesn't it? And so we sing about the greatness of God and and that leads us to great thoughts of God and that leads us to great hope and faith in God and that's the point. Confess to you... um, well, I'll tell you that in a minute. Look at, look at the third thing we need to sing about here. We need to sing thirdly about reminders of his coming judgment and salvation. Not just his character, not just his mercy. We need to sing about reminders of his coming judgment and salvation. Look at verse seven. This is a description of God coming in judgment, right? I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. This is God coming, a picture in his judgment now. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of the waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Listen to this. The sun and moon stood in their places and then I w- they went away at the light of your arrows. Even the luminaries respond when God comes in judgment. At the radiance of your gleaming spear, in your indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. Wow. You went forth for the salvation of your people. 
for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil, hang on, this is PG, to, to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses and on the surge of many waters. Why does Habakkuk go into this big graphic description of how God's judgment will be awesome one day? Because we need to sing about that and remember that to remember when we see injustice in the world and wickedness in the world and it seems like ungodliness is winning, we need to sing about the fact that one day God's going to fix all that. He's going to bring every matter to judgment and it will be an unspeakably horrible day for all people that are not in Christ. And that day comes. Judgment is coming. God will end the wickedness and injustice. But notice, in the midst of that, he doesn't just say, remember the judgment. He also comes, what? To save his people, right? God has not forgotten his people. Look back there. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. See, God has not forgotten his people. God is coming to both judge and to save, to save, to condemn and to redeem. And we need to sing about both of those so that we don't lose heart and forget. There's a fourth thing we need to sing about. Sing your heart quiet for coming trouble. Sing your heart quiet for coming trouble. Look at verse 16. Habakkuk, in singing, right, he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled and the sound of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Here's what he's saying. God just told Habakkuk that things are gonna get worse before they get better, right? The Babylonians are gonna invade and Habakkuk just says very honestly, you know what, that's, a, that's a, a potential temptation to worry and fear and to be anxious. So what does he say? What do you do when you're tempted as things get worse, things you fear the future, what's gonna happen in our country? You know, some of you have kids and grandkids, you're thinking, what sort of world are they going to grow up in? What's it going to be like when I'm gone for my, for my kids, for my grandkids? Things seem to be getting worse. How do we respond when that little nugget of anxiety takes root in our heart? Here's what Habakkuk says. You need to sing your heart quiet. Sing your heart to peace. Sing psalms. Sing sing. Uh, biblical songs that, that tune your heart to peace. That's what Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are about. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God. The psalmist is saying you need to sing to yourself, preach to yourself until your heart is quiet again. And I will confess to you that I have a playlist, a music playlist, that when, when I can't get my heart in check, I listen to that playlist. And it's got just a few songs on it and there's something about the words and the music that, that, that soothes my heart from anxiety to rest and to be at peace with the Lord. That's what music does. There's one last thing that Mr. Habakkuk sings about and I think we need to sing about it as we sing our way to hope. We need to sing and worship when all seems hopeless. Sing, sing and worship when all seems hopeless. Look at verses 17 and following. This is the part of Habakkuk that you know, right? Though the fig tree does not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. For the Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me to walk on my high places. Let me ask you this question. When you have no human reason to do so, will you worship? That's what he's saying. When everything's gone wrong, when all the plans have gone the wrong way, when wickedness and ungodliness is reigning, when, unrighteous, when righteousness is losing, when trial and difficulty and afflict, when you have no human reason for hope, will you choose to worship your God and trust him? That's what he calls us to do. You know, Christians have always sung their way to hope. 
They have. Remember Paul and Silas in jail? What were they doing? They were having a worship fest. They were singing in the Reformation. You remember Martin Luther? He was getting attacked and people were trying to kill him and he's fleeing and all that. And when things would get really bad, he would say to his friend Melanchthon, come Philip, we must sing the 46th Psalm. And that, of course, became his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Christians have always sung their way to hope. And that's how we're going to get through this. That's how we're going to respond when God doesn't make sense. You want it more simple than that? Though masks create ongoing annoyance, at least in some states, and there's no toilet paper on the shelves, though corruption reigns in government and your political hopes are dashed, though you cannot visit dear family and friends and your vacation plans were halted, though your beloved country continues its moral decline and your freedoms shrink and erode. Though your elderly loved one declines in isolation and your children wander from the Lord. Though the future seems so hopeless and uncertain and you wonder if normal life will ever return. Will we worship? Will we sing? Well, we hope in the Lord, the God of our salvation. When God doesn't make sense, when difficult times lie ahead, what will we do? You know how we will get through it. We, are, we will sing our way to hope and to ministry and to effectiveness in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, let's sing our way to righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your kindness and your mercy, you you put this book in our Bible and we, we are so thankful for Mr. Habakkuk, how he has allowed us to look over his shoulder and see the struggles of his heart and see the questions that he asked that are so similar to ours. Father, we pray that when you don't make sense, that we would turn to you, that we would trust you, that we would be careful and we would do what Habakkuk did, that, that we would sing Songs that exalt your character, that, that revel in your mercy, that, that call for salvation, that, that tune our heart to be quiet and remind us that worshiping you is not something we do because life is good or things are going well. Worship is something we do because you are our God and you are worthy of our worship. We love you. We trust you. Give us the grace to put what we've learned from this book in practice in the days ahead. In Christ's name we pray, amen.